You're listening to the CLE Foodcast with Lisa Sands, the place for delicious conversation on local food and the people who grow, cook, and share it. Here's Lisa. Thanks, Bill. My guest today is Trevor Clatterbuck, founder of Fresh Fork Market and the owner and head farmer at Wholesome Valley Farm in Holmes County. He also runs Ohio City Provisions, an all-local grocery and meat store in the Ohio City neighborhood, with business partner Adam Lambert, an accomplished chef and butcher. Trevor spent the last 12 years connecting growers and producers of local food to eager buyers in the most efficient, sustainable, and affordable ways possible. His own learning curve was steep, but he's proven that he's not afraid to get his hands dirty, literally, in the fields or in the barn. This podcast comes with a bit of a warning. Trevor is a farmer who raises animals that will become meat sold through the store. Topics covered in this episode include humane farming practices, and we touch briefly on the issues around commercial meat production. There is vocabulary used that is second nature to someone like Trevor, but that could seem jarring to some. Our conversation centers around the belief that we all should know where our food comes from, how animals lived, how they were raised, and that it matters who is doing that work and what they believe. I hope you keep listening to this episode. Welcome to the CLE Foodcast. It is so fun to take the show on the road. This week, we are sitting in one of my favorite places, Ohio City Provisions on Lorraine Avenue on the near west side of Cleveland. If you haven't been there, let me describe it. I'm sitting in the middle of the store. I'm looking straight on at a meat counter that has all kinds of amazing things. Uh, Within view, I also see a cheese counter, which is a place I have spent a lot of time. And just behind me is actually um, an in-house butcher shop for which really Ohio City Provisions is known. My guest today is Trevor Clatterbuck. So Trevor, thanks for being on the CLE Foodcast. You spend a lot of time in your truck. (laughs) Um, So I'm pretty happy to catch you here before you head out on fresh fork market deliveries and all kinds of other things that you do. I know you start your days pretty early, but what's on your agenda for today? What have you been up to before you sat down with me? You know, I wish I could say I plan out every day. Um, you know, usually Thursdays I'm I'm in Cleveland anyhow. I do uh, I help with deliveries one day a week up here with Fresh Fork, and then I do the delivery at Ohio City Provisions, so I can kind of kill two birds with one stone. Uh, today's a little different. We have a truck in the shop, uh, and based on driver's licenses, I have to like go on a different route today. Okay. So, well, so, yeah. you go where you're needed, I yeah, think, exactly. as the owner. Last man standing, yep. I'm going to ask you to clarify a little bit. So we're in Ohio City Provisions today, which is one piece of your universe of local food, but you also oversee and had founded Fresh Fork Market. And uh, I think I'm correct that you also, in, you know, in your spare time, run a farm. So give me that, uh, that quick bio of all the things that are under your local food umbrella. So you nailed it. There's three different brands, Fresh Fork Market, Ohio City Provisions, and Wholesome Valley Farm. Uh, Wholesome Valley is our production center where we raise a lot of the grass-fed beef, pasture-raised pork, uh, you know, heritage pork, and pasture-raised poultry that goes to Fresh Fork and Ohio City Provisions. Uh, Fresh Fork was my first business. I started that when I was an undergrad at, at Case Western. The initial concept there was that it was a uh, kind of like an Amazon marketplace for chefs to buy from local farmers. And that was in 2008, kind of during the, the recession. So I had to morph that over the years and it became a food buying club for consumers. So today we have about 2,500 families a week that pick up a grab bag of local groceries from 20 different locations around Cleveland. Um, so that was the first business, Fresh Fork. And then in 2015, uh, Adam and I started talking about opening a butcher shop and quickly realized that we need to have 
supply of meat before we started selling meat. So we took a step back and put it on pause for a year and the stars kind of lined up and, and I took ownership of a property down in Holmes County and, and learned to farm overnight. And uh, that was 2015 and then in 2016 we opened Ohio City Provisions where we focus on whole animal butchery and doing everything in house from making our own lunch meats to smoking our bacons to making jerky, snack sticks, bone broth, rendering lard and tallow uh, and cutting all of our, our fresh cuts in house. Well, and one of the cool things about being here is the transparency because, you know, you're staring at the meat counter as I am doing right now. And then I can just turn my head and I see two guys breaking down whole animals. You do that here. So you bring your animals um, there. I mean, there's a process, right? You've like closed the loop. Oh, hundred percent. Like I, I go from mating the animals to, to you know, helping with the birth and, and raising the piglets and the calves to hauling them for slaughter every Monday. And then the following Monday, the carcasses come here and get cut up. So, I mean, we literally see the entire life cycle from start to finish. Well, and for people that are, uh, and I hope it's most people, most people that listen to the CLE Foodcast, I think, for people that really want to understand that connection, who aren't afraid to go there, to understand that the food on their plate was somewhere. It lived somewhere. And in this case, it lived here right in Ohio, probably, what, within 50-mile radius of here? It was 75, 75? Probably, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really something. And also at Ohio City Provisions, I mean, uh, it's for me, it's a every other week stop. I can get eggs. I can get, I'm trying to think of all the things I've purchased here. I love getting the beef stock. I'm never going to make my own beef stock, so I just buy yours. I love that I can get M. Sellers wine. I can get produce that, again, the same produce really that you're putting in your weekly fresh fork bags, right? I mean, you're bringing just a whole selection of it here. And I think I read somewhere that, you know, you recognize that there was a customer that really wasn't the once a week bag customer. So the store sort of fills all of those needs. I mean, it's like a, a little mini grocery store. It is. Yeah, we sell a little bit of everything. It is the whole selection that you can get at Fresh Fork. Uh, The big difference is at Fresh Fork, we bundle everything into a weekly subscription. So our distribution costs, our waste, everything like that is much more streamlined and and we're able to offer it at a a heavy discount. Mm -hmm. Um, So for the culinary adventurer who wants to to cook every week and likes that idea of getting a grab bag that they only know a couple days in advance what's coming in it, it's a fantastic challenge and a tremendous value. Mm-hmm. Um, here at Ohio State Provisions, we also really work to, to keep our prices low and affordable and make it so that local foods is not something of privilege. You know, one of the things that I've recognized in my 12 years in this industry is that the biggest enemy of the local farmer is the local farmer. Mm. And that at farmer's markets and, and some of these markets, we're charging the highest possible price because we can get it. And I don't think it's a sustainable model. And I think that we need to recognize that our cost of production isn't always higher. And there's sometimes a year that we can really excel. You know, right now we're selling Honeycrisp apples here for $1.25 a pound. Like That is a good price, I know, because I just bought them at a grocery store. Yeah, so it's it's something where our grass-fed ground beef is $7 a pound every day at Ohio State Provisions. And it's, you know, you know exactly what's in there because you can look through the glass and watch Travis grind it and ask him what he put in there. And he'll tell you, well, this piece is from the chuck and this is from the round and here's how we take the silver skin and send you off and we add 20% fat back in. And yeah, it's it's something that we really strive hard to, to keep our prices affordable. Yeah, and for people that haven't been here, um, I think you really do notice it in the taste. I would challenge you to um, do your regular shopping wherever you go. Well, you know, whether that's your local grocery store, uh, maybe it's Costco. I feel like Costco is very popular. Everybody's like, you got to go get meat at Costco. 
Yeah, you can, but I would challenge you to uh, try the meat here at Ohio City Provisions because, I don't know, there's just something about it. I think the taste is superior. And also what I really, really love about it is um, there's usually one or two people right behind the counter. I've come in not really knowing what I want to buy or um, someone will say like, well, you know, you're interested in this, but let me tell you about this cut, like a bavet cut, bavet steak. I had never... I had never thought to buy it. I wouldn't have bought it because I didn't really understand what it was. And I'm standing here and someone helped me out and I bought it and I went home and I cooked it. It was great. And I would say that what you just pointed out there is one of our strengths and weaknesses. And I will, you know, one of the challenges that we have as a marketer of fresh meat here is that consumers come in and they, they want, they view a high state provisions as a treat and they come in and they want tenderloin or ribeye or strip steak. Well, the hardest part for us as a farmer and uh, production facility is balancing the yield on that carcass. Mm -hmm. So if you look behind the glass and you see us cutting beef, there's going to be six ribeye that we're going to get per side. They're going to be bone in. There's mm -hmm. going to be, so six to seven. So that's going to give us a maximum of 14 ribeyes per steer. We'll have chefs that come in and say, hey, I want 75 ribeyes, all 14 ounce center cut. All right, great. I'll kill 12 steers. And then what do you want me to do with the other 700 pounds of meat off of each of those animals? So this is where here, when you come in and you might be coming in expecting that you want a, a, a flank steak for a recipe you right, found. Right. And there's two flank steaks per steer. We're cutting two steers per week. We get four flank steaks. It's impossible to give everyone a flank steak, but our chefs behind the deli counter can say, hey, what are you making with it? Help me understand how you're going to use this flank steak. And we can give you something similar, a skirt steak, a bavette, um, a clawed heart steak. I mean, there's so many different steaks that we're cutting that you can't get anywhere else, a Denver steak. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. There's different steaks that all have uh, an application and our butchers know based on being chefs previously and by the texture of the meat when they cut it. Mm -hmm. And it's something that we can help the consumer really find what they're looking for. You, what you just just said really echoes uh, an earlier interview I had maybe about four weeks ago with Tom McIntyre from Kate's Fish. In fact, that episode is <laughs> called Squares and Rectangles because he echoed a very similar sentiment. He said people come in, they want everything to be a square or a rectangle. They see a recipe, they see something on Instagram that's just picture perfect and that's what they want. And he echoed almost the exact same thing, which is like within that fish, there's so many other things. And it's just not sustainable to have that be the basis of your operation. So he takes the same approach. Um, you guys are very similar in that way. I want to go back to something you said earlier. You founded this when you were at Case. Do you think you're the only Case Western Reserve University student that actually now is a farmer? I don't know. I mean, uh, I guess I can't say I don't go to any <laughs> alumni association events. You're kind of busy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fascinated by that because you studied, did you study entrepreneurship? No, I studied business and political science. I got a, a dual degree. Yeah. Well, which is really interesting because at first glance, maybe even 15 years ago, there might not have been an obvious connection to food. But the fact is food is a business and there is a lot political about food. So I would think that sometimes you do draw on some of that education. I hope no one from Case is listening, but I, I'm not sure I do. Um, <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I've... I spent a lot of money on my education, and um, I'm not saying I didn't learn a lot, but I yeah. I think for the same amount of money I spent, I could have learned more starting a business. And I think what I've learned in the community that I work with in, in terms of the work ethic of the Amish people and, and facing the customer every day and, and getting honest feedback has helped me shape the direction of our businesses and, uh, and me as a person. And I mm -hmm. think that anyone out there interested in getting into the food industry or uh, being an entrepreneur, 
don't waste your money going to an expensive university. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's something I see. I have a lot of young people that work for me, and their parents probably hate me because I've been passing out <laughs> a book now about uh, about college debt and how it's a, a national catastrophe, and, and uh, it's not going to benefit the next generation. Right. So let's talk about that for a second. You did not grow up a farmer. You're not, your parents were not farmers. So what was that learning curve like? You had this business that you know, you created and then you knew at some point it relied on farming. It led you to eventually buy a farm. Can you, can you just connect those dots for me? Well, you know, so I was doing this, um, I was doing fresh fork and, and sourcing only from local farmers. And, uh, like I said, we were getting ready to open a high state provisions and need to make sure we had supply. And I had a situation where a farmer wasn't being honest with me about how he was raising his animals or where they're coming from. And, uh, I ran into a situation in the fall of 2014 or so where I had effectively no pork for the entire winter. So it really pushed me over the edge. And like I said, all the stars aligned and, and this farm that I had been working with was interested in, in doing more and is able to allow me to invest in them and get some equity out of the, the deal as well. I bought the farm intending to be an investor and, and have it operate more efficiently than, than it was previously. I had never intended to be a farmer. And, you know, things change and, and the staff moved on or had other interests or, you know, the work wasn't getting done. And in the, I'd say, fall of 2018, mm-hmm. winter of 2019, I had to go, you know, shovel the shit and, and <laughs> help with the birthing and, and do all the stuff myself and learn it real quick. And so now I spend a majority of my time on the farm focusing on our breeding program improving the efficiency of the operations, the quality of the products, and you know, personally handle all the livestock myself before it goes in for slaughter. And finding animals that go missing. Oh, everything. I mean, it's, <laughs> there's, there's no uh, boring day on a farm. I mean, everything from busting off of fences to falling off of trailers, like, you know, it's, it's something, yeah. Well, I love, for people that, and I think people that listen are a lot like me, you enjoy the imagery of a farm. You'd like to really take a peek into the lifestyle and to the the work that's being done. So your farm is Wholesome Valley Farm. It's in Holmes County? Yeah, I'm in the corner of Holmes and Stark. Holmes yeah. and Stark. So uh, yeah, not too far away at all. If you are an Instagram person, go to Wholesome Valley Farm and give it a follow. First of all, there's lots of great dog pictures on there, which I am a fan, and you have mostly great Pyrenees, right? I have five of them, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're so they're adorable when they're pups, and they're adorable. And so um, who's the one that jumps in the car with you and works with oh, you? Oh, Hank. Hank's Hank. my buddy. Yeah, I just love seeing that. But also, you just really get a glimpse of what you're doing day to day. And um, and so I, I find out a lot about what you do there. So the genesis of the interview today and how this came about is I get your emails. And there was a time when you would say, here's what's in the Fresh Fork bag this week. And then I noticed that you gradually started to tell some stories and, you know, you'd offer some insights, your own personal insights into something that's happening in the news or a current event. And the thing that caught my eye this summer, I think it was in June, um, was your commentary on the ransomware, the Chinese uh, ransomware that affected a major U.S. meatpacking plant. And, you know, it's a kind of a funny thing to read in an email uh, like like what you normally put out, what I normally go there for, you know, like a recipe or to see what you've got. Again, it really connected the dots for me. You said something to the effect of, you know, that's never going to happen with my meat suppliers. And I thought that was just so interesting. So I want to talk a minute about your relationship that you've developed with the Amish, because it's very atypical 
you know, not a lot of technology. It seems to me like you rely on face-to-face, personal relationships, snail mail. So tell me about that. Well, you nailed it. And I think maybe we should tell the consumer a little bit about the, the ransomware and the JBS story. I, I think, think you should. So what Lisa's talking about is that, um, you know, back in June, the prices uh, spiked again across the red meat industry as major meat packers out west were uh, held ransom on a technology issue and uh, had problems with their production. And what I told the story about in there is the scale difference between a big packer that can supply ribeyes all day long and somebody like us and what we're doing. And the packer is the, the facility where uh, the animal is slaughtered and then usually cut into different pieces and packed into boxes. Um, a majority of America's red meat comes from uh, Iowa, uh, and there's a big you know, brand, Iowa Beef Packers, there's Tyson, there's brands like that, mm-hmm. that have massive slaughterhouses. By massive, I mean they're usually vertically integrated with feedlots that are confinement feeding operations, and they could kill up to 10,000 beef a day, which to me, I absolutely could not even imagine the logistics of doing that and yeah. just how do you, you know, when you slaughter a, let's say for easy math, a thousand pound steer, you get a 55 to 60% yield on the rail. What that means is that that animal's hanging at 550 to 600 pounds. That means that you took 400 to 450 pounds of hide, head, guts, hoofs, uh, everything out of the animal that's now waste. And mm-hmm. where does that go? Like, could you imagine 450 times 10,000? You're pushing that waste around with a front end loader or a bulldozer or something like that. Yeah. And then where do you haul it to and how do you dispose of it? And there's a lot of energy and, and waste that goes into this model so that we can give everyone the choice they want mm-hmm. uh, in America and keep food cheap. Then the next part of that equation is understanding the logistics of, of that animal is going into the slaughter plant at you know 100 degrees live weight or live temperature, you know 99.5 or so. How do you chill it down to a safe temperature to handle? Mm-hmm. So this is something that you know we at our packer, our packer kills 12 to 15 beef a, a week. Okay. And so he's killing them and then he's hanging them in his locker and chilling them down to 40 degrees and then the beef hangs for two weeks and then it's cut. And the, there's a benefit to that on beef in particular because there's different enzymes that tenderize the meat. And one of these giant packers, could you imagine if you kill 10,000 a day? and let them hang for 14 days, how big would your walk-in cooler have to be to house 100,000 beef? So they've perfected a model where they cut them up hot, it's called, and they pack them out hot by putting them through a tumble chiller, which is an ingenious piece of technology that chills it rapidly in a vacuum bag. They could pack it out and send it to the grocery stores or further processing plants and then save back the prime sections, the rib sections, the short loins, Mm -hmm. to dry age a little further. And it's efficient, but it also leaves the the industry with no inventory on hand. Mm. So last year, what we saw with COVID and the, the shortages on meat, and then again in June with this ransomware issue, was that we have this just-in-time food supply system that now is failing. And it failed last year, and then we let it fail again this year, and we still haven't learned. Mm-hmm. And the consumers still going to Costco for their meat and going here and there, and they haven't understood that all of last year and this year, the local farmer's still there and that's your food security. And that's really where we were getting at with yeah. this, this question is that by having farmers locally and supporting them and having the infrastructure in place, the facilities to kill them, to hang them, to cut them, to pack them out, ensures that we have a reliable supply on the table other than doing it yourself. And so, you know, this article I wrote back in June explained a little bit about the, uh, the industry and what I was just talking about, the volume that they move and mm-hmm. the lack of inventory on hand. And then the contrast to how we do it and how our um, suppliers work. And the slaughter plant that we use is uh, is Mennonite. They're 
uh, what's called like steel wheel Mennonite. So they have tractors, but they have to have steel wheels on it. They don't drive on the, the road, et cetera. So they're very close to Amish. Okay. They have a phone in the shop and all that. They're not allowed to be connected to the internet. And I was talking about a debate that we had been having with the owner there. Uh, it's very interesting. Summary is because they're not connected to the internet, they're never going to have a ransomware right. issue. <laughs> but it's even funnier, or a little bit more peculiar in the sense that this, uh, this community itself is having a struggle understanding that there's benefits to technology and there's benefits to the internet, but there's a misunderstanding among the elders in the church community that believe that, that the internet is only good for porn. Mm, and, yeah. and, and they have, they actually think that Microsoft is the same thing as porn. Wow. And so they have, um, created a technology there's a somebody in their community out mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania that has a technology called conservative technology services and they their claim to fame is they produce a computer that is guaranteed not to connect to the internet oh and it's called the chore boy okay <laughs> and so the joke and Adam's laughing right now because we've been telling uh, we've been telling the one guy there we talk with daily Glenn that we're going to buy him a cell phone and call it the chore child because he's, he's not allowed to have a smartphone but it would really make our lives easier so, yeah, well, and, and the joke with the chore boy is this computer is, is like, you know, DOS-based or whatever. Actually, uh, it's right. open source. It's Linux, I believe. And it's okay. um, older technology, but the guy used to be a cabinet maker, so it's, it's housed in a wooden cabinet. Oh, my gosh. And so we keep telling Glenn we're going to take a two-by-four and, and router out a, a hole for an iPhone and, and, and stick it in there. So, a secret iPhone. Yeah, so that's a little yeah. bit about the meat industry and, and technology. But, you know, it was just this, this fun story to tell that, mm -hmm. that the point I'm trying to get across right. is, like, understand where your food comes from and how it's produced. And that we're killing, you know, two to four beef a week in a facility that kills a maximum of 15. And we're hauling mm -hmm. them there ourselves, hauling them out ourselves. And we have complete custody of the animal yeah. the whole way. Yeah, well, or that the, uh, and I know Costco isn't a 24-7 operation. Well, it is a 24-7 operation, but I can't go to Costco. I, I, can, I can drop everything and go to Costco. I can get a big giant pile of meat at any time I want, except... During a pandemic, during a quarantine, when everything came to a screeching halt, and yet I could go to you guys, I could go to Saucy Son, I could go to direct to a farm, and it was no problem. I could get meat. Yeah, we, you know, last year we really made it a, a, it was a struggle to keep up, but we said, hey, this is an opportunity to show people that we can do it, and we hope they come back the next year and the year after and the year after and make us their number one stop. And all throughout the pandemic, we didn't raise our prices at all, and, uh, you know, the sunshine that, that grew the grass didn't cost me any more last year than this year than the year before. Mm -hmm. And so we kept the price of our beef the same and the same with our pork and our chickens and mm -hmm. our turkey and all that. And yeah, it was, we were able to supply people last year. You know, I'm sitting here listening to you and I, I had been wanting to do an episode on, you know, meat sourcing for a long time and it's, I'll do a disclaimer. So no vegans at this point will be listening to this <laughs> episode, but I am a meat eater um, five or six years ago through learning, you know, working with, you know, Edible Cleveland or uh, working for Whole Foods Market, which I did for a while. You know, it really forced me to ask questions and really think about how I was willing to spend my money. I think now it's really caught on, which is great. But I still think we do a bad job. Like I'm sitting here looking at you and, you know, you're talking about, you know, killing an animal and hanging an animal. And it, I get it. It's still hard for me to hear, but I feel like it's a necessary thing that people need to understand that. I mean, at least in my household, one of the things I try not to waste, but every now and then something like finds its way to the back of the fridge. The thing I hate to waste most is meat because I connect it to a thing. I connect it to something that was alive and it really, really just doesn't sit, sit right with me. Anyway, I just think it's a good conversation to have. 
Let's pivot back for a second to the the Amish. You talk to them regularly. How did you gather collectively um, this? By the way, are your bakers Amish too? Or Yes. Yeah, I mean, because your bakery is delicious. Um, how did you um, amass a group of people in a partnership um, at the outset? Is there kind of like one guy that you work with? It's, it's something interesting. Once you start to work with the Amish community, like, um, they're motivated and, and interested and, and growing and they're entrepreneurs throughout. And the moment you need something, they have a strong network, both family and community that can help supply what you need. So, you know, I start out 10, 12 years ago, going to different granges and little, uh, you know, halls in the country and hosting an open to the public meeting. Well, the people who were showing up were the Amish people who were looking for a market mm-hmm. and you know, without internet to market their products online or a car to get to farmer's market or things like that, they were looking for something different than selling at a very volatile auction market at that mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to pick up some Amish growers then, and then it just grew from there. Like, hey, my sister or brother-in-law is doing this, or they have land. And, and all of them have a little bit of land because they have to at a minimum have enough acreage to support one horse and a barn. So they want to grow a strawberry patch in the spring for a little supplemental income or mm-hmm. something like that. So throughout the years, it's just grown and blossomed. And if you're, you're honest and fair with them, it'll, they'll treat you the same way back. Are things harder for you because of that lack of technology or um, in some ways, is it just, is it simpler? It's both. <laughs> so, you know, there are different sects of Amish that I work with. Um, there's uh, what would call New Order, Old Order, and Swords and Troopers. So the New Order would have an email that I can email them to, cell phones, I can text them, call them. Those are the easiest to work with. They also have the most other people that they're selling to. Uh, then there's going to be the Old Order, which are a level below that. A lot of times I have a phone outside the home and an answering service. They're pretty easy to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Uh, they check that, that service quite regularly. Um, and then the... Swartz and Troopers are the ones that had the most burning desire to grow produce and can do it for the the lowest price. Um, They are a sect of Amish that are absolutely off the grid. Uh, They don't have, I mean, there's no indoor plumbing, there's no electricity, there's no phone whatsoever. The buggies can't have rubber on the wheels, they can't have a windshield, they can't have a slow moving placard. Their hats have to have wider brims than the other Amish. Their clothes have to be darker. Their beards have to be longer. There's a lot of very nuances that once you live in Amish country, you start to learn a little of these differences in the different church districts. And if they're a Dan church or a Kime church or et cetera, like how I have to work with them. And so it's taken me a decade to learn these nuances and earn the trust of that community and be part of it. Mm. Yeah, I think that's just a story. It's it's frustrating sometimes <laughs> and challenging, but at the same time, if you plan far enough in advance and say, hey, I know with the sorts of troopers that I can't get a hold of, I'm not going to have them grow something highly perishable like strawberries or lettuce. One, they don't have refrigeration to chill it. I'm going to have them do something that they can harvest at once and we can take in bulk like potatoes or butternut squash or something mm-hmm. like that. And then that's where on my farm, I have no interest in growing butternut squash you know, that everyone else is, we grow the things that we can do best because we have refrigeration, unlike most of the Amish. So I'm doing the, the leafy greens. I'm doing the green beans. I'm doing the things that need to be chilled quickly and then handled appropriately. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was going to actually ask you what role your farm played in that. So I know you talked about the meat. So you do grow some things. Doing Fresh Fork Market, it's a, do you, do you refer to it as a, a buying club, a CSA? How do you describe it? I've always said farm buying club. Well, before I bought the farm, I called it a farm buying club because mm-hmm. the CSA is typically farmer owned. Mm-hmm. Well, now that I'm I'm a farmer, it kind of blends the lines that um, 
it is a CSA, but a multi-farm CSA in the sense that that we source from a variety of guys so that each week the fresh fork bag isn't just cabbage and squash. It's a meal plan coordinated to make sense. So if we give you a whole chicken, it might have carrots and onions, garlic, potatoes. If we give you, um, you know, last you week. You have a pizza bag. Yeah, the yeah. pizza mm -hmm. bag. So we we made pizza dough balls. We had somebody source, uh, make cheese for us and shred it. We had tomatoes so you can make your own sauce, hot peppers, garlic, onions, um, there's eggplant in there. There's a whole variety of things. So you've got a, a activity for the family and, and nutritious food. So are there things that um, you wish that you could uh, or aspire to put in your bags? Are there things that, you know, you're like, wow, there's, you know, people are asking me for X. Is there anything that you're sort of hopeful to provide in the future? Is there a new arena for you, a new extension? Uh, as far as a, a, an item, a produce item, a thing. For produce, that's a tough one. I mean, the one frontier that's missing in Ohio is uh, certified organic stone fruits and apples. Ah. So that's the, you know, a majority of the product we source is organic, uh, either certified or non-certified organic, uh, but, but organically grown with the exception of tree fruits. Mm -hmm. uh, so peaches, apricots, plums, uh, apples, pears. There's not a grower in the state of Ohio that I'm aware of, or doing it on volume at least, mm -hmm. that is growing organic tree fruit. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of the biggest frontiers for a, a farm to come up. Uh, it's also a tremendous risk and tremendous investment. Whereas mm -hmm. like if you want to start growing zucchinis or lettuce, it takes next to no money to yeah. get started. If you want to I'll plant know, a vineyard. And you'll have and, millions of them. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Do you think about planting a vineyard? I would want to work in an orchard first um, and learn how to do it before doing that mm -hmm. or buy an existing orchard and, and change it over. But mm -hmm. I think that um, it's too, it's more risk than I can stomach right now. Yeah. yeah. It's really another whole ball of wax within agriculture. It's really, it would be yeah. a very different, it's a, it's, it's a whole different process. Having talked with uh, Ohio growers, um, I don't, I don't know how you would almost, there would be a lot for you, I think, to, to take that on. Well, I think also it'd be a lot for the consumer to understand. So one of the most challenging things that we see in food is that there's this this Instagram picture worthy right. produce or whatever. And, and that's a small percentage of the harvest. And so now because the American consumer has valued the appearance of their food over the nutrient density or, you know, the quality overall that has depicted how we grade things. Yeah. And apples in particular are one of those that if you don't use the fungicides uh, with the humidity we have here in Ohio, mm -hmm. I mean, everyone probably remembers August last month was <laughs> just awful. You end up with a bunch of scab and different funguses mm -hmm. on the, the skin that leave them imperfect. Yeah. It eats perfectly fine. Yeah. It's going to yeah. have, it'll probably be healthier, mm -hmm. but it doesn't look like a number one. Yeah. And so that's one of the things where we'd have to change the consumer first before growing organic. I think if I were, or I think a better opportunity or better business model for an organic orchard would be value added production. So mm -hmm. apple sauces, mm -hmm. juices, mm -hmm. um, things like that, where people don't see the imperfections and grow the apples for what they are. Don't thin the trees as much and cut your labor that way. Mm -hmm. And then use the fallen fruit for for your livestock. Last week, episode, uh, I think it was 21, I talked to Ashley Weingart with Perfectly Imperfect, and we had the same conversation, um, and I get some of her boxes, and most of it looks pretty normal, but if you would compare it, I suppose, to the bright, shiny, wax-covered things in the grocery store, they're going to look very, very different. But as you just pointed out, they eat exactly the same. I mean, they're, yes. they're totally fine. I also don't want to assume that people listening, everyone understands, I use the term CSA, that is community-supported agriculture. And 
basically it's correct me, Trevor, or rephrase it for me. Um, it's making an investment, making a commitment in a grower and a farmer at the start of a season when seeds are being planted, when things are going in the ground, and then benefiting from the harvest, you know, collectively. Is that, would you describe it that way? That's the traditional mall. So the, the CSA dates back to the 70s out west, uh, as, as I understand, and that at that point, small organic farmers had no market, so the consumer invested in them by buying a share of the harvest. So if you had 100 investors or 100 shareholders and you know each week's harvest, they would get 1% of the harvest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if you harvested 10,000 pounds of kale, they're going to get 100 pounds of kale. You know, something like that. So mm-hmm. that's where the, when I started Fresh Fork, the CSA model had, had the traditional CSA model had, um, how should I say it, stalled. And mm-hmm. it, there was a limited number of consumers where that was applicable to, and we were never going to change that. So we need to find a way to make the CSA model change to meet what the consumers wanted. So what I was hearing when I did my initial interviews with consumers that belong to CSAs or who were, more importantly, it didn't matter if you were a member of a CSA, but it was, it was a matter if you did not belong to one and mm-hmm. why didn't you? And mm-hmm. that was why I wanted to, who I wanted to talk to. Okay. And what I found out is that consumers at that point didn't like the idea of lack of choice, too much of the same thing. It didn't work in the kitchen. They would, that the CSA made more work for them to go find other ingredients so that they could use what they oh, they had. So I've had that happen. We, yeah, we worked backwards and said, I want to create a model that matches the modern consumer in the sense that they want a meal plan. And this is 12 years back now. Um, so this is well before all the home delivery services and the meal kits and all that stuff. And put together a plan that each week had a, a, a loose theme. So like we talked about the pizza mm-hmm. bag or chicken dinner bag or something like that. It has a loose theme that you can easily see what you should be making with this. Has uh, something that's unique you haven't received previously. So for example, we'll throw something that's a challenge or an Iron Chef ingredient. It might yeah. be kohlrabi. It could be um, Cel- oh, celeriac, yeah, something yeah. like that, that that you wouldn't usually buy yourself. And then and then we'll get, you know, maybe it's only 20% of the customers, but they'll say, hey, I would have never bought that myself. I love it. Give it to me again. So there's a theme, there's something unique, there's something big and something heavy. Those yeah. are the four four things I look for each week oh. to make a bag that's of exceptional value to the consumer. And, and when I get something that I don't know what it is exactly, um, and I, I'm a pretty accomplished cook, but I, but every now and then I'm challenged. My, my advice is like, just roast it. Roast it. Everything tastes Yeah. <laughs> oh, what do I do with my fennel? Just roast it. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. Well, speaking of meal plans, I mean, you're busy all year long, but you're getting ready for the season of, I hope, a relatively back to normal holiday season and the Super Bowl. I hope nobody comes after me because he used the term Super Bowl, but the Super Bowl of holidays, Thanksgiving, which I know is just a really big... Uh, well, first of all, there's a lot of planning that goes into Thanksgiving because... So do you have turkeys yet? Are they... Oh, are I mean, they... yeah, I've had turkeys for a while. So, okay. yeah. No, Thanksgiving, like you said, starts... You know, this year's Thanksgiving started last Thanksgiving. Okay. So um, I have a flock of heritage birds, which uh, what that means is they're turkeys that naturally reproduce. And it's an older genetic strand that's... Uh, usually not raised commercially. Uh, they're more similar to a wild turkey, mm-hmm. um, more dark meat, uh, smaller breasts, uh, more uh, subcutaneous uh, fat, which yeah. would mean under the skin. They're very, very much opposite of what you get in a grocery <laughs> store. Yeah, they're very tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're no, they cook no different than another turkey. But, you know, I started turning the lights on for those right after Thanksgiving last year. And oh. we started uh, breeding them in January so that we'd have fertile eggs to set in February and March, and then we started hatching our first birds March 7th this year. Oh, wow. And the last group of heritage birds in May. 
And so those birds have been on the ground since May and then uh, out on pasture since the middle of the summer. Eating really good. E- eating whatever they want, flying to the neighbor's property, doing whatever. Like it's, they're kind of <laughs> wild. Okay. And then the uh, the standard, what we call market turkey, your, your hybrid bird that comes in from a hatchery. We got those in July 7th and August 11th this year. So I have two oh, different batches okay. that are out on pasture now. And, you know, they're a lot of work. I mean, every day we take them scratch grains, which means that we sprinkle things on the ground that they'll go looking for. So if it's kernels of corn, if it's wheat, if it's barley, sunflower seeds, something that to stimulate their natural desire to scratch and find that uh-huh. activity. It helps our pasture because they, they dig out any uh, bugs that we don't want there. They help fertilize it. Um, it's just a win-win and it makes a much better tasting bird. Mm. And well, and I have to say, um, they have pretty good lives until the one day that they don't. Yeah. <laughs> and they don't see it coming that, that much. No. Well, we're going to start wrapping up here um, because you're going to get ready to open. Well, it's 10 o'clock, so the store is going to open pretty soon. But what is it that you wish people knew more about? Uh, what's something that just kind of on a regular basis in your mind, you know, bugs you a little bit about people's general understanding of um, food and food production and the food ecology, you know, the universe of getting our food? What are you thinking about? What's on your mind? I think one of the things I try to tell, you know, we talked a little bit about my newsletter that I send out every week is I try to get across the point of the economics of farming. Um, it bothers me when somebody comes in here and sees the price on a, a ribeye and says, oh, you're, you're getting rich. It's like, no, that ribeye is 12% of the carcass weight. Let me do the economics for you that I, I have 36 months. I have to raise this animal out on pasture. Well, 30 months usually. So under 30 months on pasture, well, it had a nine month gestation in the cow. I have to feed the cow, feed the bull, raise the calf haul to the slaughter facility, pay the kill fee. I get a 60% yield on the rail. Then we cut it down, get another 60% out of it. And then of that first 60, 60%, 12% is the ribeyes. So, and then everyone wants to make a fair wage. And I got to pay $50,000 a year for a meat cutter mm-hmm. and have a, a yeah. room full of them. Yeah. So I would like somebody to be in my shoes someday. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not me. I have some wonderful customers. I'm, I'm blessed and, and grateful for everyone's support. I've, I've done awesome things in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. That I couldn't do without the support of the customers but um it's that one comment here and there that gets under your skin and and you wish everyone could walk a day in your shoes yeah well i mean it's all comes down to choice and what you value if you're gonna value a a a six dollar giant macchiato thing you know or are you gonna value a six dollar dozen of eggs that were that were laid by chickens that you can actually go and look at somewhere you know it, it we pick our battles and we all I hope most of us have one area in which we're we're willing to extend our understanding, uh, make a couple of sacrifices. Um, it's one of the reasons, honestly, why um, I don't really eat chicken wings very much anymore because it dawned on me that if I have a dozen wings, it's a lot of birds. Yeah, it's six Just chickens. Just for me to have <laughs> yeah. some chicken wings. You know what I mean? So I still like my chicken wings every now and then, but... I don't know. I just, I eat them less. I think about those things. And again, I think people that find themselves here to the Foodcast, they think about those things too. For folks that want to get a little bit more information on all of the things that we've talked about, first off, if you've not been familiar with Fresh Fork Market, you can find details at freshforkmarket.com. It's the end of the summer season, but uh, you can start, you have your fall or your winter share is on sale now. Yep. It starts the 1st of November. It starts the 1st of November. And again, the things that you get in your bag are going to look different from summer, but that's okay uh, because that's that's what eating season. Season, yes. <laughs> eating seasonal. Then Ohio City Provisions. It's on Lorraine Avenue, just west of, uh, really just west of the West Side Market. Very easy to find, um, and it's in fact it's a great complimentary stop to the West Side Market. 
I don't think when you created this, you were designing this store to to take the place. I mean, take a Saturday uh, coming up and and shop around and shop some of the smaller places and make a stop here, and you'll see what I'm talking about. And stand and look at Adam and the other uh, butchers cutting meat. Um, it's really something, and I guarantee you, when you put that meat on the grill and put it on your plate, you're gonna think differently about it. And then um, we talked about Wholesome Valley Farm, which is uh, Trevor's farm uh, where he is raising uh, a lot of the meat and also some of the produce for the store and for Fresh Fork. Uh, But again, all of those, they all have websites, they all have social channels, and you can check them out. Trevor, I really thank you for sitting down today. I don't take it for granted because I know you're probably in your brain going like, come on, come on, come on. I've got to go and do a bunch of things. But um, I think you've really revolutionized uh, food here in this uh, Northeast Ohio. I think people know you um, maybe through one piece of it. Um, so I hope we were uh, successful in connecting all the dots today and really talking about how um, you know how the Northeast Ohio food system works collaboratively with um, a bunch of different people on your team, but also um, some folks that are unexpected. Like um, I just I think the name Steel Will Amish is a band. I just love it. Does it sound like a a band name? Um, Anyway, thanks for being here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Lisa. I was glad to participate. CLE Foodcast is a project of Fork in the Road Productions. My sound engineer is Bill Connors. CLE Foodcast is supported by Chef Douglas Katz and the Katz family of restaurants, Zug, Chimmy, and Amba. Hey, everyone. It's time to take a big, juicy bite of fall. It's apple harvest season. Visit OhioApples.com to get connected to local independent farms throughout Ohio. You'll find a helpful resource for orchards, farm markets, recipes, special events, and more. That's OhioApples.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And please give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook. Just look for CLE Foodcast. Have a great week. And remember, stay hungry, be kind, and always, always set a bigger table.